and here we go. How are you getting on, Melissa? I'm doing well. I'm so glad to be here. This is going to be a very new experience for me. I can already tell. <laughs> oh, no, in a good way, in fairness. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Anything that's something I haven't done before is is good. It's like plunging into uh, a, a place I've never been, and I love that. <laughs> well, there you go. Funny enough, you've never been to Ireland, so I guess this is as close as we're getting. Exactly. I'll, I'll get there, though. Do not fear. <laughs> so... Um, for anyone who may not know you, how about you introduce yourself? Sure. I am Melissa Bernstein. And gosh, for 32 years, I have co-run a toy company with my husband, Doug, called Melissa and Doug. And we make toys for children that really spark their imaginations. We call it open-ended. They're not toys that talk to you. They're toys that you must, as a child, engage with to unleash their potential. And then when everyone thought my life was over and I would sail off into the sunset, I decided to come out with my life-changing memoir about how I had struggled uh, for my whole life with something very little known called existential depression, which is this deep, dark crisis of meaning that I had ever since I was born. I suppose that that's a good place as any to start. <laughs> Uh, obviously, we like it is, it is very little, very little known. We wouldn't know much about it ourselves. So, what, what, what's it about? Sure, it's um, you know it's pretty deep, and and many say it's not even a pathological condition. It's a philosophical condition, which is why it's not really in the journals of conditions because it generally is thought to not be able to be treated with traditional pharmacology. So it is a crisis of meaning, which now that we've gone through COVID, many say, ooh, I get what that is because I was triggered by COVID into a crisis of meaning. But for me, there was no trigger. I was born with these three questions that would not leave my head. One was, why am I here? The second was, what is the meaning of life if we are ultimately going to die? And the third was, okay, now what am I supposed to do during my brief time here, knowing that my life is going to end soon. And because I couldn't even verbalize these questions, much less get concrete answers to them, it led me to a very, very dark place where I thought, oh my gosh, there is no meaning to existence. And I, as a person, am not able to make meaning in a meaningless existence. That's, that's rough. I, I can't, I can't even begin to imagine what that must have been like. Yeah, it's it's so rough. And and I think many who fall, fall into existential nihilism, which is the darkest form of existential despair, they, they do end their lives because you are utterly, and I was utterly hopeless. But thank goodness I did. And because I did find my way out of that deep, dark cavern, that wanted to submerge me and told me to end my life. I wanted to help others who might be stuck down there and not see that crack of light. And I wanted to, to help others climb out and show them the light to climb out of that abyss. And in exploring this topic, I guess your whole life, um, have you begun to find the dances you're looking for or? I absolutely have. 
which is the incredible part of the story. It doesn't mean every day is like butterflies yeah. and rainbows because yeah. that is not true. And that's the other thing I'm here to say is those of us who are afflicted because I have a condition. And if I get in my head for more than like 20 seconds, I go there like even today. Uh, so I have to engage in a continual practice, but my, my path to sort of fulfillment took two, took two paths, um, which is pretty cool. So one of them was a psychotherapeutic path because what happened, so I was born with these really deep, dark feelings. Like the minute I had awareness, I had thoughts, I had these questions. And I mean, they were really dark. And, uh, and it was almost impossible to live with this voice in my head saying, it's all futile, it's meaningless, nothing you do will ever matter, like end it. And that was basically what the voice in my head said my whole life. And because I, some part of me didn't want to end it, like I was also very curious and the same curiosity that made me ponder these higher realities like our mortality also led me to want the answer to it. So I, because I needed to live and I didn't want to take my life, I submerged, disassociated and denied everything I was feeling. And I put on a facade. Like I ended up adopting this perfect uh, persona that never made mistakes, that was like, really seemed seemingly carefree, uh, that achieved continually for the validation I needed because who I was in this darkness, I got that message very early on that it would never be accepted. So when I ultimately kind of cracked, which wasn't until middle age, I put on this shiny facade for as long as I could. But when you deny everything you're feeling and everything you are, it is utterly exhausting. And I got to the point where the pain I was feeling, the resistance I was doing to resist everything I felt created such suffering in me that I ultimately, it was like a dam that held it all back started to crack because you can only do it for so long. And, and the cry of my soul to be seen authentically was like so loud. It was louder than the drumbeat of mortality. It was like, like these two competing drumbeats. Um, and I finally, took the path, two paths. The one was psychotherapeutic because I realized that I first needed to accept who I was because I had built this facade that was purely a shell and, and depended on external validation to give me my, my self-worth. And I knew that wasn't giving me self-worth and I was still completely and utterly empty inside. So I had to enlist the help of a therapist for the first time ever and admit I was broken because therapy equaled like flawed and weak. So it took middle age for me to admit that. I took the journey inward and finally, after it took four years, uh, accepted kind of who I was and that I'm a whole spectrum of emotion from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. And I'm really extreme because I'm a creative. Um, so I go really high and I go really low. Um, and when I'm high, I don't want to come down because it's like being on drugs. It's like yeah. the best euphoria ever. And when I'm low, I want to end it. Like I'm so low. So it's very um, extreme. And then, that, but so that brought me self-acceptance. That brought me, okay, I get it. 
this is who I am and I accept it now and I allow it, even though it's challenging to live in a world when your sensitivities are so great, but I accept it because it gives me the ability to create. And I saw that my curse of a personality was also my blessing. So I had a blurse. So that was cool, but that still didn't bring me my meaning. And I was still struggling with that meaning, like what is it all about if we are going to die? And that path became my own path. No one led me down it of philosophy because I realized that philosophy is the antidote to crises of meaning. And many wiser minds than mine pondered these deep, dark questions like from the beginning of time. And I never in my life had studied philosophy. I never thought about it. But something just, um, you know, in, in Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, that's what started my philosophical journey. And as I started reading about these folks that had similar crises of meaning and, and had to ponder why and had to figure out strategies to not take their lives and to find meaning, I realized my answer was in that. So I studied some of the wisest and most uh, inspiring philosophers ever and ended up finding my pathway in meaning just like they did through that. Sorry, that was really long. But... No, that's, that's good, that's good. Like, well, not the topic as a whole, but you know what I mean. Um, is there any, any of name like that you that you looked into? Oh my gosh, so many. And um, I'll tell you my favorites. So, you know, Viktor Frankl, his book, Man's Search for Meaning, really changed my life because he was in a concentration camp and, and had a complete meaning crisis, like what is the point, uh, and had to find his way and then became an existential psychotherapist. So he took his darkness and really transformed it into light and his whole family was killed. I mean, his, his story is incredible. And then from there, oh my gosh, Friedrich Nietzsche is like, he, um, I mean, we have written very similar words because I write verses to ponder these things. And some of them are uncannily the same. And I think those of us that ponder the same things, you know, there are only so many words in the English language. So, uh, you know, we, I, I love him. He, he's, he's maybe my favorite philosopher. And um, Heidegger talks a lot about inauthentic living and between inauthenticity and authentic, authenticity is this deep well of anxiety. And so many of us think that when we start to feel anxiety in our lives, that we, we have to run the other way or we have to medicate it or we have to avoid it or deny it. And actually all these brilliant philosophers, they say it's the opposite. Anxiety is actually essential for growth and transcendence. And for me, that was so powerful because I always ran away from it, right? I was like, I can't feel this. It's it's bad to feel these feelings when actually the only way out is through. And it was only when I went into the feelings and realized that they are part of me. And when I run away from them, I'm running away from myself that I discovered who I truly was. Uh, so, so Heidegger, Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard is the father of existential philosophy. And he has a, a quote that's like one of my favorites, which is anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. And I think when we have lots of possibility, 
whether it's the way we are to act or the potential of everything that we can create and make, it's terrifying to so many of us that we hide in inauthenticity because we are terrified of the power of our own potential. So that was really powerful. And uh, who else do I love? Um, there's, so, there's so many, it goes on and on. Uh, John Paul Sartre, he, he's really powerful. Um, there, there are many, it, it goes on and on. But anyone of I, note, like in, in modern times? Anyone in modern times? Like, like someone who's, who's still out at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I, I follow um, Emmy Van Derzen a lot. And she's actually, so in Europe, existential psycho, or they actually don't, they don't even call it, this is the coolest thing. They don't even call it psychotherapy. In Europe, they call it existential therapy because it's not the traditional psycho model. They used to call it psychotherapy, but they've changed it because they truly believe it's philosophical. And it's about like, what do I do to find meaning in my life? And that's very different than the traditional Freudian model where we like analyze the personality and go back to childhood and, and all that stuff. Now I had to do some of that stuff because I had a lot of repressed trauma too from my childhood. So part of accepting myself was that sex, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and going that route. But for meaning, I completely agree that it's just therapeutic. And it's really about asking yourself these deep questions about what is important to you, what do you value, and making your values consistent with your actions, which so many of us growing up in a society that like tells us what to do, and we feel like we have to abide by, we go against who we are, we never discover who we are, we become someone we think others want us to be, and it's no wonder we're so depressed. I mean, when you are someone else and you're you're manifesting someone else's truth, not your own. I mean, you are bound to become despairing. You're definitely right there. I think Especially with like it. the rise of social media has definitely done yes. way more damage than good in that perspective in falseness online and the image exactly. of false and it has just destroyed yeah, us. You, you end up playing a character. Well, for some people, they end up playing a character. Which, exactly. Unfortunate. And even I, you know, I created these toys, uh, my, my, for 30 plus years, basically my whole life, since I was in, since I was in my twenties, this was like my first child. And even though it was so authentic in channeling my despair into these light, bright toys, I even felt I was hiding behind this toy, like, cause the toys were so joyous and joyful and playful but I knew the despair that birthed them. And I felt like while that person behind the toy was hiding her despair from herself and the world, I was also living a lie. So lesser, and, and I still felt inauthentic. So the point is those of us that are really living the lie, that are truly hiding who we are, I can't imagine how they feel. Cause I was actually doing my salvation in, in channeling the darkness into light, but I still felt inauthentic. And when you, when you kind of said to yourself, I need, I need to get some, some therapy. How, how difficult was that for you? Cause as you said beforehand, a lot of people do see it as, okay, the person is like broken basically. It was so difficult. I mean, it was because my whole facade was, I can do this alone. I don't need any help. 
I'm an island, like I'm gonna be strong. I'm gonna put on this hard exterior and I'm just gonna fight through whatever happens to me. And basically what happened is I wasn't able to fight anymore. You know, I became so weak uh, from just fighting too long. And one of my misperceptions that really ruled my life was, I don't need anyone. I can do it alone. Asking for help is weakness. And I now see it's the 180 degree opposite. Like asking for help and saying that I can't do it is the strongest thing you can do. Like, but literally I would have, you know, sworn to anyone that it was the opposite. So I think it's very hard when your whole mantra is, I don't need you. I don't need anyone. I'm a rock. I'm an island. I mean, that's what I always said. Like no one will ever understand me. No one can help me um, because that's what I believed because I, you know, I had been rejected for so many years for being this introverted heady creative that asks too many questions that mutters to herself that is very soulful and feels very deeply and gets um emotional very easily so i knew that that person wasn't really the the uh image of what a acceptable person is at least in our society so i hid that and part of that was hiding that i was human it was like, I'm going to be this robotic person that can just do everything. So I think um, it took a lot of courage on my part to say, I need this help. But now I'm like so far to the other that I'm so proud to say. In fact, the other day I was um, dropping my son at school and we usually take the dogs with us to drop him off. But Wednesdays are my therapy appointment. And I, I still go, you know, every week and I will my, the rest of my life, um, just because it's part of my practice now that I have to do. And it's like, for me, an hour where I can pay someone to listen to me and I don't have to give anything in return. Um, and, uh, so that day we didn't take the dogs cause I go right from dropping him off. And he was like, why aren't we taking the dogs today? And I was like, oh, I have an appointment right after. And he's like, what appointment? I said, my therapy appointment. And he looked at me, he's 13. He was like, therapy? I'm like, yeah, I go to someone every Wednesday. I would have never said this. Like even two years ago, he goes, what do you mean you go to someone? I'm like, I go to someone to talk to. He's like, what do you talk about? I go, anything that comes up, things I'm having a hard time with. And he goes, that's weird. But, and, and sort of was the end of the conversation. But, you know, just the fact that I'm trying to normalize this so that it doesn't happen to another generation um, makes me so proud because in my family, like you never, you didn't talk about feelings. You certainly didn't talk about mental health and you never went to a therapist or like you were so broken in a very bad way. Very stigmatized, isn't it? Like it's seen as this very negative thing. Whereas like for yourself, it's been such a positive thing and something that you'd that you want to share the message that go to therapy it's good for you you know but i don't yeah, even so, know why it's uh yeah Leslie, what do you attribute it to what, why do you think people stigmatize going, going to therapy well because i think we all saw the movie at least here we saw one flew over the cuckoo nest and i 
I know it really is. But I think it's the idea that you're crazy and that you're unstable and that you're going to do something radical. And it's, it's portrayed as something that only really weird people have. It's just this idea that, and it's almost like, I don't want to go near it. It's so weird. And that's why it was, you know, and in at least American culture, like it's not part of the societal myth. I mean, being sad, it's all about the pursuit of happiness. You know, we are chasing this dream that is butterflies, rainbows, white picket fences, like running barefoot. It's always sunny. Like there's never clouds in any photos about like families. It's always- my window right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the sun is always shining where and and truly if we're the full emotional spectrum i mean the sunshine is only like a little bit of it like more than more than half of it is like cloudy but we just it's not part of our our way of thinking so you just get this this sense that it's just wrong and um i think everything gets deemed good and bad and you know for me there were good feelings and there were bad feelings and good the only good feeling was I'm great. I'm fine. Everything's okay. Um, nothing that was, you were never allowed to be sad. And you, you were saying this was a thing in, within your family as well. So what, what was it like telling your family that you, you were going to therapy or that you were experiencing these things or, or have you? I mean, I only told them for the very first time. I mean, my parents, if you're talking versus yeah, my, no, my family, um, my, my family that I grew up with, I only told them because I was coming out with the book. And I knew they were going to read about it. And so it was pretty crazy. And then uh, the reaction was even crazier. My, my father said, it's hard to believe that because you were so optimistic as a child and you seemed so carefree and that everything was fine. And that made me, I had to sit on that like a week because I was, I was so horribly... Um, sad as a child. So I didn't know whether it was he just didn't notice or it was my compensation with the facade was so effective that I hit it. Like it was either one wasn't good. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I was like, wow, I either did a really good job of hiding it or you were really oblivious. <laughs> um, so it was kind of surreal. And then my mother said something like, um, well, you know, no matter how I feel, I, I, I tried my best to just be happy. Like I, I, you know, I want to, and, and I get it. Like she was basically saying like, whatever I feel, I deny it because I just try to be happy. And that's what we all do. Like it was, it was honest. And I so appreciated that, but that is what we do as a society and what I did with my own kids. Cause it's all I knew. So I'm trying now it's so hard for me to accept people when they're sad because it's what I wanted so desperately yet when my own kids do it, I want to deny it. I want to fix it. I want to get them happy because I'm immediately triggered. Like, I don't want you to be sad because something bad's going to happen. If you're sad, like I need to get you happy right now. And I'm like, quick fix. Like what's wrong with you? How can we fix it? when that is not what people who are in a dark place want at all. They just wanna be seen 
exactly in that moment as they are. So it's the wrong way to respond, but it is all our natural tendency. Tendency. I think that's the only way I've ever seen it handled. Because you, you said that, and I was like, because that's how like it happens with, with I guess most people I know. That's kind of the, the thing over here. You got a problem? How do we fix it? Go from there. Absolutely. That is, and that is, that's that's our culture. It's like fix it, move on, wipe it off, get up, get going. And you know that was that was what I did. I mean, so but what you you know resist persists. That's sort of the mantra. And the more you push it down, the more it festers. So I now know that that is actually not the way to handle it. And, um, and every day, you know, cause I do have six children, I'm allowed to try to remake the past. And I think when we can take something that's been so generational and I feel like so much of these patterns and behaviors has just, it started at the very beginning of time and we just keep pushing it forward, all our crap on the next generation. It's like, here you go, honey, take all my crap because I didn't figure it out. And when one of us can finally say enough already, I'm done with your crap. I'm going to shed those leaves and I'm going to, you know, break free of that paradigm. It's so incredible. And that's what I say to so many people who are now trying to break free of their crap from the past. And, um, and, and move forward fresh, I'm like, you have to do it for the next generation to like show them that you can break this generational trauma and start fresh so that they can be free of it. I mean, it's the best gift you can give your, your children. Yeah. And you, you were saying beforehand, like you, you're like, you're, you're worried for, was it the coming generation? Because of, you know, all, all the mental health stuff going on. What, what, what do you think can even be done that's a great question. Um, and I think it's a hard one. You know, it, it's <laughs> what did you say? I, I said it's a hard one as well. It is. Um, but we think about this all the time. And I think COVID had so many, um, so many horrific things to come out of it. But one of the blessings is it showed the world that anyone can be at risk for a mental health issue. Because I think so many people who thought they were sort of okay, right? And many said, oh, I've never experienced any sort of dis despair or questioning life's meaning or isolation, experienced it in a big way. They were suddenly like everything that meant something to them, all their distractions, right? All the activity they engaged in that they thought brought their life meaning, like shattered in an instant. And they were forced to really look inside for maybe the very first time. So if their life was built on external uh, validation or external activity or distractions, suddenly they were having to face themselves. And I think this brought a lot of folks um, anxiety that didn't, that didn't have it before. So I think this is a wake up call for our world that we all need a practice before the curveball hits you in the face. So here in America, we have physical education from kindergarten on. Literally, you take it as a class, everyone through high school. 
And if they feel like it's so important to build up your body muscles ahead of time, right? So that you can like thwart any injuries, you can thwart illness. Um, they talk about health and that type of thing, healthy eating. They talk about all the physical stuff, yet we don't at all talk about emotional and mental fortitude, resistance, how to understand how we'll react to things, how to build that, like to those tools. So when the curveball hits us, when the next pandemic hits us, when someone, God forbid, dies close to us, when we lose a job, when we have a transition, right? A, a transition that can seem very exciting, like high school to college. But for many, that's, a tr that's something that they have no emotional fortitude these days to handle. So knowing that that curveball, which was COVID, can hit us and it's not going to be just COVID. Like, I think we avoid the inevitable, which is going to be, you know, a job loss, a person we love dying, retirement, a, a divorce, like anything, a breakup earlier on, an F on a test. I mean, it, it could be anything depending on your, your emotional, you know, composition, even not getting selected for a team like depending on how sensitive you are. I mean, people like do dire things sometimes when they don't get selected. I mean, I almost wanted to end my life when I didn't get into a sorority I wanted to get in. So, you know, and I had zero ability to cope with the emotional fallout from being rejected by my peers because I had never built any of those tools. So, you know, I have now, because I realize that I can be very high and very low, I have what I call my backpack of lifelines. And that is my daily practice to remain what I call equanimously in the middle. Not that I'm trying to cling to the middle, but it grounds me in either direction. When I'm too high and I don't want to come back down, it, it brings me down because I have to, you know, I'm living on this earth and I do want to live on this earth and be, be there for my family. Uh, and when I'm too low and I don't want to get out of bed, it kind of supports me so I can get out of bed and do what I need to do. So I want this practice to be part of life from preschool on because I want us to support our emotional resilience just like we do our physical. Yeah, uh, that's deep. Um, fortunately, over here, we've had something along the lines of what you're talking about. Like we've had some serious... Um, I guess resources put towards mental health for, for students like some serious stuff like it wasn't talking about your mental health wasn't even a thing in Ireland five years ago and then they just went they went deep with it they went really hard on it and thankfully it's a thing in schools some would say there's, there's more to uh, be done but in comparison to what we might have had when we started school a huge difference which, which is great to see but That's it's, it's kind of funny at least in our in our school, the, the mental health thing was a thing before the, the physical education thing was because it only became a subject when we were leaving. So a bit, bit of a reverse there. Yeah, and that's amazing. I think the more that we do that and the more we, we say that it's necessary um, because it comes with realizing that life isn't just about the pursuit of happiness and it's about accepting the full spectrum of everything that will happen. Uh, that we start to realize we need these these tools and they have to be integrated into our daily lives every single day. So the idea of a practice, um, it's not just 
accepting that you feel a bunch of things. It's because life will inevitably have highs and lows. How do we support ourselves during the, the, the swings? Yeah, I, I like how you compared it to, to weather. Like it's not always sunny, often it's cloudy, but that does, doesn't mean it's raining like. So exactly. it's, it's, it's gonna be a mix of everything. Um, but unfortunately, if you live in Ireland, it's it's rain or snow. <laughs> or, yeah, doesn't work here, sadly. I think we have uh, Irish weather is something awful. Uh, well, that's why you need those. Umbrella. I would say you need those tools more than others, then, because you you do in a way like you're you're at least the weather is going to be on the lower side of the emotional spectrum, and that means you're going to need even more of your own tools to make your days sunny on the days when it's not. Yeah. Uh, I, I like the way you approach it. I like the way you talk about it. And I, I, I really, really like your your openness about it because you know, a, lot, a lot of people go through stuff, but some kind of like just, as you were saying before, put it deep, ignore it, won't talk to people about it. But then you, you, you wrote this this book about it, right? And, you know, you've been talking about it since. What, what, did, it, what did it take for you to, to go put pen to paper? Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a great question. Uh, I think it took a lifetime of not putting pen to paper and hiding it all in the darkness. And finally I knew, you know, I was, I was basically, I had to go into the abyss between inauthenticity and authenticity in order to come out and say, like, I can't do this anymore. If I'm going to be authentic, I have to share exactly who I am and I have to help others do the same thing. So it really, it, it was about me to start, but my mission became like, if I'm just doing this in middle age, oh my gosh, how many others are, are stuck also and can't get out. And I don't want others to be stuck till middle age. I want all these young folks who are 18, 20 to realize that it's okay to be exactly who you are. And it's okay to say, I don't want to be what society wants me to be. I want to be this or that and, and to develop the courage to say that, you know, sometimes it's tough conversations to say to your parents, I know you want me to be a doctor, but like, I don't want to be a doctor. It's going to, it's going to hurt my soul to do something that pleases you and doesn't please me at all. So I want to give people the courage to be able to do that. And I think I could only do that through one, sharing the story in all its rawness, because I couldn't shroud it in anything, because that was the point. That would have been my life, and my toys are in this beautiful packaging with, you know, a shiny logo, and that's what I had done. I had taken the darkness, shrouded it into light, and made 10,000 toys, and I was still feeling inauthentic. So, I knew that this had to be as raw as it could get. And because of that, I couldn't even do it in the traditional way of going through a traditional publisher because all the traditional publishers were like, it's too dark. It's not going to relate to enough people. It has verses in it. Who wants to read verses? Um, simple ones, no less. And no one will, will buy it like this. And that's what I was told. So Doug and I decided we were going to publish it on our own. And, and not go that traditional route so we can make it exactly how we wanted it to be. Yeah. yeah. And that's what we did. Yeah, that's rough. People are saying like it, would, it wouldn't go anywhere. That's especially yeah. when it's, it's something as deep and. 
it it's really yeah. painful, but it and it's been part of my my journey all along. People saying that what emerged most authentically out of me wouldn't be accepted. Um, it happened with the toys too, and uh, but you know what? When you vibe your truth, and and when you're doing something different than convention, that's what people are going to always say, and that's what I've realized now. I mean, we've sold close to a billion units of to of toys. Like we have sold a crap load of toys. So you know what? We've proven that like simplicity when it, it, it works and it resonates in a huge way. And my book, it hit number one on all Amazon. It's a memoir with verse that everyone said will never sell. So I think it's just about when you do something authentically, whether it's been successful before or not doesn't even matter because if you do it in your own unique way, then maybe you'll be the first. Maybe you'll be the first that has a memoir with verse that changes the world. Or maybe you'll be the first that comes out with a simple wooden toy that sells millions of units. Uh, so I'm very, you know, I'm very quick to get upset when people judge other people's creativity because they're only judging it from the eyes of what's been done before. And anything you do that is truly revelatory can't be judged. It can only be judged in the hands of the audience you're trying to, um, to serve. And they can judge it, but can someone on the outside that that doesn't have that experience, not a chance. And you know, and in fact, if they judge it as unworthy, that might actually mean that you're doing something that has never been done before. Well, number one, congratulations on how how high you ranked on Amazon. I wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine that was an easy task because I'm, I'm sure they, they got a couple going on there. Um, and yeah, again, like the success of the book, fair play. Um, but with regard to um, the toys, what, what, why toys? When you guys started a business, why, why was it toys? Why? Because I, I suppose, you know, most people start a business and it's probably not toys to think of. Exactly. And by the way, when we started a business 32 years ago, not only did no one do toys, no one did a business. Like everyone took, it was about never honoring what your passion was. It was about picking a career that you could be in your entire life and ride that escalator from the beginning to the end and move up the ladder and retire there. And, it, and you weren't supposed to you know, satisfy your soul. It was just about doing your obligation to yourself and your family of making a living. So I think no one started a business. And then when we decided it was going to be toys, because honestly, we wanted to do something that we knew could impact uh, the world in just you know a simple way, but that had the ability to change someone's perceptive in the way they live their life. And we thought if you could unleash the, the imagination of a child and allow them to see the extraordinary in the ordinary, that might change their lives. So we very early on, and all our parents were involved in education. Um, we loved children. We have six. So we, we proved that in having our own. Uh, but in fact, people ask us all the time, are you Irish? <laughs> and we're like Jewish, but you know. Don't start, don't start. <laughs> That's right. We have a lot of, yeah. we have a lot of uh, children too. So I think. <laughs> yeah, it's very we, Irish of you. 
Yeah, it is. <laughs> I've heard that a fair bit actually before. But I've never and by the way, we have Irish twins. So uh, two of our six are, well, actually four of our six are like a year apart um, or less, 11 months, 11 months apart. So we have like two sets of Irish twins too. Um, so believe me, we've, been called, we've, we've gotten our share of being called Irish. It's a massive compliment, first of yeah. all. I mean, I've never heard someone say that before, and I love it. Thank you. <laughs> You're We're welcome. Irish twins. People call us Irish. Oh, God. Yeah, they do all the time. They're like, because like, whenever, the, the first question they always ask when they hear we have sex, and I always say it, I'm like, yes, they're both from two of us, because they always think, like, you must be a blended family, or it must be a second or third marriage. And I so I always just answer, I'm like, yep, same two parents six children, we've been together 35 years. You know, so they just, that gets it out. Of, and then they say, are you Irish? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's weird, cultural differences, how that's considered weird in America. Whereas I know friends who have siblings of, I'm gonna say somewhere in the 12. Yeah, you know, I know someone like, is 12, 12. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. they're perfectly normal, you know? It's, it's like cheaper by the dozen, but like, more normalized well no it's not it's not exactly normal you look at you look at the dad and you look at the mom like <laughs> that's, that's, no, that's normally how it goes on you see the 12 kids get out of the car it's like, like a clown car driving yeah I, i'm sure six though is very ordinary there right um no not not ordinary not but anymore. more spanish not anymore no. smaller here in the last yeah. 40 50 years yeah here too and and you know the birth rate i mean i just was in a conversation with someone the birth rate went, has gone way down now really yeah i mean it's the lowest it's been they thought during covid you know there'd be this big baby boom but no if anything it created more fear about the future and fewer people are having babies so i think you know we're we're, we're even more uh different in the in the having sex but we joke we we said back when we had our sex we said you know, we're in the toy business. If we lead by example and we encourage everyone to have six children, our business will like explode. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then I was like, wait, why is no one following us? Like all our friends are having two or three, like we're <laughs> all the big families. Yeah, um, the big families have definitely gotten less popular in the last yeah. couple of years. And me and Jared are big into the environment. And to be honest, it's not the worst thing. You know, we're, well, we're, we're you know you look at our world we're just a I know. Bit, tiny bit overpopulated at the so moment. So true. We we had a guy get on. Uh, he's he's a great guy. He's been on a fair few times, but it's probably the, the most out there thing he said. The earth, earth can only sustain five hundred million to one billion people sustainably. Wow. Um, and you know, he's right. it's one of those things. He's, it says apparently he's right, but I, I really wish he isn't. Um, but That's yeah. I, guess I know, and that's why it's so important to make sure that, you know, your children, like, like bring something to the world that can help it. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Selling like, nearly a billion toys must be crazy. Like, that, that, when, when, that, when you found out, like, it was nearly, or it hit that number, or was nearly at that number, what, like, what was your reaction? Just, I think it was, you know, I mean... I've always, Doug and I have always been criticized for thinking differently about our business. And I think every step along the way, we were told can't be done. You'll never do that. You can't make high quality toys that are low priced. You can't distribute the way you distribute. I mean, it was every single juncture. 
we kept hearing, you can't, you can't. And I think when you believe something so deeply and you see, you see it in your head and you work night and day to make it happen for decades and go through so much struggle <laughs> because really we had every single calamity befall us you could imagine to the point where we said we would never do it again. And now we're doing it again with, with our new venture lifelines, but we really said we would never do it again. Uh, I think when you see it resonating and you, you see that it's kind of changed the way people think about something like play, it's, um, it's so satisfying, I have to say. It's kind of like, and, and again, I don't like to say it, but it is, you know, both Doug and I are motivated by a chip on our shoulder. That, I mean, insecurity drives entrepreneurship, <laughs> just so you know. Uh, you know, I, I never felt validated for who I was, so I needed to achieve. And, and I'm sure Doug is very much the same thing. So it is kind of like, look at us now, honey. You know, there is a little bit like all you naysayers, uh, you know, follow your heart, do what you think is right, um, lead authentically, and good things happen. So it, it's a little bit of like, like just satisfaction, I would if, say. If there's anyone who can say like, look at us now, I reckon it's you. In fairness, like you, you have done something crazy. Like when I looked at um, like the, the background of the business and like when it started, you, you have done seriously well. And that never mind like, you know, the struggle is number one, but then add that you have six kids, then add that, you know, you were going through a lot of stuff and you were managing at the same time. I don't even know what Doug was doing, but like just on your side, you know. <laughs> uh, you he was, yeah, you know, uh, he he faced the brunt of all the, the worry and he, you know, I never would have even done the business if it weren't for him. I was so terrified and uh, following convention that if he didn't really encourage me to step off that treadmill and follow, you know, follow his lead, because he had much more courage than I did, I never would have done it. So I think the two of us together were a really good team because, um, and we never would have made it. The, the, the things we went through were so horrific and challenging that if we didn't have the support of each other, we never, we would have given up. Um, we, we came this close to giving up many times uh, together, like alone, we never would have made it. So, uh, it's, it's really incredible to have a partner who you can really turn to when it, when it gets very, very tough. I mean, that's just part of the importance of, of teamwork. Yeah, uh, it really I'm, is. I'm glad to hear a success story because myself and Thomas would be shouting down the phone at each other. You know, we would be a terrible team. Yeah. But, uh, but it's, happens, it's good fun. <laughs> that happens too. I mean, you know, it's not always bliss and I think you have to have those those times when you're you're disagreeing over something to get to that that good resolution so you know partners always have disagreements my yeah, only yeah. you know my only advice that I give because we we mentor a lot of entrepreneurs and and advice is only as good as the person who gives it and if they resonate with you so I always say it's just from my own experience but you know if you think of partnership as a circle my advice is just don't be both the same half of the circle. <laughs> that is not a good partnership because then you're in each other's stuff all the time. And if you're both strong people, that will never work. So Doug and I are fortunate because we're both so strong and we're so opinionated 
about what we do, but we're different halves of the circle so that like he can do his stuff. And, you know, I love it and I applaud it. And he'll come to me when he needs, you know, when he wants my opinion and on my half of the circle and the same thing. Like I do my thing, I lead with my own vision. And then when I, when I want his input, I'm, I ask it and it's awesome. Uh, but, but that's really important. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad he's worked so well as a team. Yeah. But you, when you brought up like that, people are having less kids. I just had a qu question there. Like, have you guys noticed that in, in your sales? Like, uh, have you noticed like pe people are buying less toys for their kids? Cause you, oh, you, yeah. you've, been, you've been doing this for decades. Like, I don't, I don't even know anyone who buys like toys for the kids all that much. Normally, it's 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 one of these, an iPad, and maybe an Xbox. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole phenomenon called age compression, which was hey, that age, people, age compression, which is basically people are getting older, younger, and toys that you know. When I was young, I played with Barbie until I was like 12, 13. And that wasn't nor that wasn't abnormal. And Legos until, you know, and, and now Legos are, are more sophisticated. So they are going up, but I'm talking the simple Legos, <laughs> like the box of Legos I played with till I was close to 14. I mean, today, could you imagine a 14 year old playing with Barbie? Like I, I, I never. 14, 14 year olds, I've seen smoke. Like just exactly. walk down, have a cigarette. Like 14 year olds <laughs> are like having kids now. Like they're, you know, it's not like, um, so it's called age compression and absolutely it's affected buying toys. I mean, our competition is no longer other toys. Our competition is is the iPad and the phone and technology and, and overscheduling in general. Like in the US sports have become, because everyone thinks their, their child is gonna go to college and play sports or everyone has that dream, like lessons and private teams and club teams are starting at age five so that's when they would be playing with with our toys so definitely i think we have to be a bigger piece of a smaller a, a bigger percentage of a smaller piece of pie to grow okay so, so rather than like change into like i guess consoles or whatever you're kind of just like okay will this be like the the bigger side of, of the toy industry or as big a slice as you can be exactly sense. yeah we would never change i mean I think, uh, or at least I, I, you know, my my philosophy is, you know, very anti-screen. Um, not that it's not great in life. I mean, it's changed my life in, as a business person, but in young children, it's extremely damaging to the development of their critical thinking and yeah. verbal skills and imagination and and developing resilience. So definitely not in that. So, yeah. would you mind if I ask this? Uh, how old are your kids when they got a phone? <laughs> That's a great question. We wait until, I mean, it's it's not that late, but they're going to middle school. Because what, what is that in the US? That is 11, 11. Okay. Because it's when they become independent. So in middle schools, when they start, there's no, like, but there's no sign out process anymore for your kids. So after school, they can go home with anyone. And that's when that becomes the tool for uh, alerting us where they're going and where they are and giving them the independence to be able to go downtown or go um, home with someone. So it was for a particular purpose, which is like, and also that's when they start to make their own plans together. 
Um, and that's also an incredible independence, right? I'm not making the play date anymore. Like they're creating. So it, it's, um, it has to be managed um, and it's a slippery slope. And, and no one says, um, I mean, during COVID, I was terrible. We, we slipped so far backward because I had to work. Like I work full time and my kids were home on Zoom school and Zoom school was like, I don't know why, it was like three hours a day. It was like, where, what is going on? And they couldn't leave the house, you know, cause we were in, in quarantine. So it came like technology became kind of their babysitter, which I was so against, but like, that's the point. Sometimes you gotta, there's no choice. I mean, and I felt know, like it was one of those situations for me and everybody. Yeah, I mean, like you need, you need your own time and obviously you're working at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know people who've had, had that struggle as well, especially people who didn't have enough screens in the house. So, you know, like if, like some households before this were had like one laptop between them. So you might have, you know, people have to do like a, a meeting at work on the laptop, this old, like crappy computer. And then, oh, someone's got class on it. Yeah. And then the phone's not good enough to do either either. Yeah. 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 It, it was a rough one. You know, it, it was so bad. People find so many computers that there's st still right now that there's a shortage in, um, what were they called? Microconductors? Yes, there, there's still a shortage in those. I know. So, uh, I'm, I'm with it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I suppose you're probably better off keeping the kids off the screens, but I'm surprised you said 11 because like, I, I was pretty late to get a phone. I, I was like 12. But I know people who are older to get them. Um, yeah, I think here, you know, again, here, that's really probably pretty late, the latest anybody, because then what happens, so you think about peer pressure, if you don't have it in middle school and all the kids are making their plans on their phones, then your child suddenly is removed from the group and suddenly they can't make plans and they're not included. And so it becomes for a parent, like I have no choice, right? So you're brought along in this like, societal pressure and everybody's getting it either before in like second grade or middle school is the latest anyone is getting it here yeah so like i'm just going along with the like i want my kid because that's the that's the, the the worst possible thing for me maybe even worse than the screen is that my child will fall into isolation and then despair that's like a direct channel to yeah. despair yeah. So it's it's balancing competing issues. And am I right? I have no idea. I just basically did what I thought would be best for my child. Well, you, you're right. That's all because, you can do. Yeah, that's all you like can do. And then you have to. Then that's why I always joke. I had six children because I had to I had to rectify the the mistakes I made with the prior two. But now I'm like oh out of God. chances. So the last two, it's like I'm so sorry. No one, no one's going to learn from your mistakes other than the younger parents I can try to help educate. I'm sure your kids are fine. <laughs> They're okay. Thomas, do you have a question here? I was just going to say, like, during COVID, like, especially with, like, social media and, like, chatting with the lads and, you know, every day it really helped, you know, stay in contact with them and prevent myself from going mad. Yeah. You know, so. <laughs> imagine, like, you know, being a kid and your entire thing is, like, 
you're seeing your, your friends at school, now you don't see them, now what? Like, you, you'd go a bit crazy or you'd be kind of coming into your, your, your mom and dad every few minutes saying, ma'am, ma'am, you know, just, just driving them mental basically. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It was really, it was a challenging time that no one had any um, preparation for. So we all just were like, I don't know what to do. Let's just, let's just do it. And there were tremendous repercussions, but I think, you know, we, we, it was unprecedented. And it's like what I'm saying about having a practice. I think maybe, you know, now that we know what we know, we'll hopefully develop better tools ahead of time to be prepared if something like this should happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're hoping, um, but yeah, like you, you couldn't prepare for, prepare for this, but, and if you did, it's kind of suspicious. Right. Uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were part of the, yeah. Conspiracy. Yeah. yeah. The old Illuminati yeah. or something. <laughs> um, yeah, that's just, just crazy. But I guess, Moving forward with you, like, do you have any intention of writing another book or are you, is that the big surprise? That's a great question. Uh, well, I'm creating a ton of products, so that's really exciting. And I am writing another book. That's, uh, yes. So I'm doing both. There you go. Okay. So you're, you're staying busy and has, has COVID given you more opportunity to, to stay busy or has it hindered your workflow? Oh my gosh, you know, the, the blessing again, COVID has had a lot of negative things. So I don't want to deny the fact that it, there's been a lot of loss for people, but for introverts, it, you know, in that sense, it's been a gift um, <laughs> because I really will take any excuse not to see people. Um, and in a way that's bad, I have to force myself to, to be social. So for me, it's been such a blessing um, in creativity. I've had more time than ever to just be with myself and ponder and create and build things. And uh, yeah, I think in a way um, I'm, I'm terrified of it, you know, ending because now I have to do more stuff with people and less time to just do my own creative stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, thank you for giving us this, the chance today to talk to you, like, especially if you're really introverted, like, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, glad glad you you gave it a shot. Um, so I, I guess it's kind of everything covered. Unless you have anything left over, Thomas, do you? You you keep mentioning um, these verses. What exactly are they? Oh you, wow! You said you wrote verses. What what what, what, yeah. what do you mean by verses? I mean, I wrote um, rhyming rhyming verses. They're they're some people might call them poems. But um, I call them verses. And basically, they came into my head from the time I was like three years old on to help bring order to my thoughts and feelings and questions that were utterly unanswerable and disordered. So they answer my deepest questions and ask a lot of questions and talk about the beauty and the pain of the world. And in my book, there are close to a thousand of them. So I wrote them as a child. I thought they were too despairing and simple to ever be appreciated. So I hid them away from the world my whole life. And when I finally um, unearthed them to write my book, I had 3,000, like 3,500 of them that had never come out. And I had lost a whole bunch of them. So I'm sure I had like four or 5,000. 
Uh, so they became my bid for being seen as I truly was because they were the truest reflection of everything I thought and felt. And while they stayed in the dark, so did I. So part of my own story was to bring them out of the darkness and allow them to hopefully touch others the way they had touched me. And that's why my book is called Lifelines because they were lifelines, lines in writing verse, because they're lines of verse, but also lifelines in being my beacons of hope in a really dark time. That's I, I, I like the name of it at least. I, I like the meaning behind it. It wasn't just slapped together. No, 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 I not at that. all. Nothing is slapped together. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so if, I guess uh, that's kind of it, but like, again, thank, you, thank you so much for getting on. Oh, you're so welcome. It's my pleasure. You, you're both awesome. And if anyone wants to find us, you know, our community is international and it's entirely free. Doug and I are doing this as a labor of love to help others feel not so alone. And it's lifelines.com and we offer workshops and we have this journey that you can take uh, and it's all free. So we welcome anyone who wants to find a really beautiful, warm, empathetic community. Well, you know where to find us. But if people wanna check you out, where can they find you? I mean, I am at Melissa Bernstein at lifelines.com. They can write me personally. I will answer them back. And uh, our community, everything, our whole ecosystem is lifelines.com. And our Instagram is at seek lifelines. There you go. So if, if you know where to find it, if you want to find her, you know where to find her. There you go. Uh, if you got this far, fair play. Uh, have a good one. Take it handy. Bye-bye.